This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, well, let me uh, welcome you to the first day of classes at the UC San Diego School of Medicine and Pharmacy. And uh, think back to the time almost more than 40 years ago when I sat in the same seats as you did, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and waiting to learn. But I was also a little worried because I knew I had to learn a lot of stuff. And in fact, uh, that's the case, that you have to learn even more than I had to learn. And so it's been called drinking from a fire hose. Not a very attractive uh, analogy. I prefer a much different analogy. Think of it like a big three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. You're going to have all kinds of pieces. It's an interesting puzzle. It'll take you a long time to put it together, but at any one time, you don't know which piece is important. So pay attention to every piece for its sake and try to enjoy yourself doing this. Okay, so as you can see from my title slide, uh, I've carried many uh, job descriptions here over the years, many more than are shown here, and I'm board certified in medicine, hematology, and oncology. So what am I doing here, the opening lecture, talking about evolution? Well, it's because along the way in my career as a physician scientist, I became interested in anthropogeny, which is this investigation of the origin of humans, and that resulted in the creation of a UC San Diego SOC Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny, or CARTA. And we convinced the uh, curriculum committee without too much trouble, I must say, they, they thought it made a lot of sense that since you're all here to hear about, uh, learn about one species, we should begin with understanding the origin of that species. <clears throat> so there's a core reading uh, article that I wrote actually based on this lecture a few years ago and some additional reading. As with every lecture, they're learning objectives. I won't go through these. These are just for you to go back and look at uh, when uh, you want to catch up. And this is the outline of my lecture content. Again, I'm not going to go through this listing right now, but this will be the roadmap that we'll use as we go through the lecture. So one question you might ask is rule of thumb is you should never have more than one slide per minute for a talk, right? Why do I have so many extra slides? Well, many of them are what I call supplemental enrichment slides, not stuff you really, really need to know, but I think you'd find interesting and make the whole thing more exciting. So let's begin by looking at humans in an evolutionary context. The first single-cell organism from which all life arose is supposed to have arisen about 3.5 billion years ago. And this indicates a diversity of known species on the planet, not necessarily the biomass. But it's very clear that we are part of a very minor branch called the deuterostomes, of which the major subgroup are the vertebrates. If you zoom in there, we shared a common ancestor with other mammals uh, around the time the dinosaurs disappeared. Uh, then we had the prosimians, the new world monkeys, the old world monkeys, so-called lesser apes, and a group that used to be called the great apes, and now called the hominids. So let's zoom in further here. 
we shared a common ancestor, the orangutan, maybe about 15, 20 million years ago, the gorilla, maybe about 8 million years ago, and the chimpanzee and bonobo, about 6 to 7 million years ago. Now, we originally classified all these species as great apes, and you can immediately see, looking at this diagram, there's something wrong with that classification. We are closer to chimpanzees and bonobos than they are to gorillas. In fact, we are closer than mice and rats are to each other. At the level of amino acid difference, there's less than 1% difference between us and uh, these two pan species. So the class reclassification calls us all hominids, and the various species that existed and up to our time are now called hominins. So thinking of diseases of a species, it's reasonable to suggest that the major diseases of a given species are likely to be related to maladaptations during the recent evolutionary past of that species, so things that haven't been, have changed recently. And so it would make sense to compare disease incidence and susceptibility between humans and our closest evolutionary relatives, and actually, surprisingly, very little of this kind of work has been done. But one thing is very clear, that some of the differences are due to anatomical differences, striding bipedal gait and its medical consequences. It's almost certain that the ancestor of chimpanzees and humans uh, had a posture more similar to the chimpanzees. We don't know exactly what the posture was. And this upright walking appeared, seems to have appeared relatively soon after the divergence, although sustained running probably originated later, about two million years ago. So humans are very unusual. You know, we are uh, born coming out of a fetal position, uh, sort of like this. And then we stand up gradually, stand up straight. And as you get older like me, start <laughs> going down again. So uh, it's not surprising that this bipedal gait of recent evolutionary origin has many biomedical consequences. Low back pain, strains, injuries, spine deformity problems, herniated intervertebral discs, so-called slip discs, varicose veins due to the pressure from above, hernias, hemorrhoids, knee joint problems, etc. But perhaps the most dramatic outcome was the effect on the birth process obstetric difficulties. So six to seven million years ago, it's very likely that our common ancestor had a pelvis like that of a chimpanzee, and the size of the head was similar to that of a chimpanzee. The upright posture then resulted in a flattening of the pelvis. But that was okay up to about three to four million years ago, when the head was a little bit bigger, but uh, it could still manage the pelvis. At the present time, the size of the head of the baby is so big that there's what's called cephalopelvic disproportion. And the difference is really dramatic. Uh, besides the fact that for some reason the variation in gestation period is rather different, the duration of labor is much shorter in a chimpanzee. And in fact, chimpanzees give birth at night, mom takes care of everything. If you look at this YouTube video later, you can see a a rare example of video of a chimpanzee mom taking care of her own birth with not much trouble. And it's pretty clear, even before modern medicine, that uh, there, there was a lot of assistance needed at the time of birth in, in humans. 
And this difficulty resulted in maternal fetal mortality, which was quite significant, which is a puzzle from the evolutionary perspective. Practically speaking, it gave rise to the medical procedure of cesarean sections, which have saved many, many lives of babies and mothers. But and now there's what some people call a worldwide epidemic of cesarean section births, up to 80% in major hospitals in Brazil, clearly out of proportion to what is needed. On the other hand, there's still many areas of the world where there's insufficient access to this kind of important care. But this is a whole issue you'll come across later in obstetrics. Okay, so there, there are a few other anatomical differences which we won't go into. But let's talk about other disease differences between humans and great apes. You would think that they're very similar to us, right? But in fact, when Nisi Varki and myself and others have looked into the matter, what we found is that there are substantial bi biomedical differences, excluding differences due to obvious anatomical features. For example, the commonest cause of death in Western society is heart attacks, coronary thrombosis. The great apes don't seem to get them. They get a different kind of cardiac disease. Falciparum malaria, the big killer malaria, is unique to humans. Most of our sexually transmitted diseases are unique to humans, as are typhoid, cholera, the rapid progression of HIV infection to AIDS. There are also probable differences in things like hepatitis complications, the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, the rate of cancers, preeclampsia, and possible differences, only anecdotal but still rather surprising, common disease like bronchial asthma, polycystic ovarian disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and so on. This is really an area that uh, requires a lot more research, but there are ethical issues on both the human and the chimpanzee side that make it difficult to pursue the matter further, but more work needs to be done. Okay, now let's step back and look at human evolution in terms of human lineage-specific evidence and the fossil evidence. So what happened after the last common ancestor of humans and so-called great apes along this lineage, the hominins? This is an area that exploded with information in the last decade. And uh, I'm presenting here a summary I got from Bernard Wood as of 2016. Oh, before I do that, there's often a tendency to look at this problem like something like this, right? Or as somebody else said, uh, somewhere something went terribly wrong. But actually, I put up these uh, amusing slides to make a point that this is not how it happened. We did not have a com we did not uh, evolve from chimpanzees. We had a common ancestor with chimpanzees. So the right way to think about it is in in this uh, figure from Wood and Boyle, where bipedal posture and the appearance of these early species, uh, one of them famous one called Ardipithecus, uh, discovered by Tim White at Berkeley. Uh, is around this time, four to five million years ago. Then appear a series of what are called Australopithecines, a famous Lucy fossil, a side branch of which a dead end, so-called nutcracker man with very large jaws, probably a, a vegan, a vegetarian kind of a species. And about two million years ago, uh, the appearance of hunting, running, red meat, eating, stone tools, and the appearance of the genus Homo which includes Java man, Peking man, the so-called terminal lineage in, in Indonesia, the hobbit probably, and then various forms of homo that spread across from Africa into the old world, uh, all the way from Java to uh, what is now Great Britain to uh, 
other parts of uh, Eurasia. And many of them then start disappearing, although some of them persist for a while. And then comes Neanderthals. The brain size, meanwhile, is increasing to the point where the size of the brain of the Neanderthal is bigger than that of ours. And then finally, what we call us modern humans finally appear. So uh, an important point arising from this is that human evolution is a bush, not a ladder. There was this complex bush of species out of which uh, we are all that seems to be remaining, which is a fascinating question in and of itself. But we can't go into that in great detail, but we do need to talk about the origin of modern humans. So there are two classic hypotheses based on the available evidence. It's pretty clear that Homo erectus, uh, about two million years ago, left Africa, went all across the old world, and uh, went into various parts of, of Eurasia, and, and some stayed back in Africa. So one theory used to be called the multi-regional hypothesis, that these lineages gave rise to the different groups of people across the planet with some interbreeding. A later theory was the out-of-Africa hypothesis, a replacement that about 100,000 years ago, our species emerged in Africa and replaced the others. This is essentially completely wrong, as far as I can tell from all the evidence. But this is not completely correct, because it's mostly correct, because there was some interbreeding, a little bit of transfer of DNA from some of these other lineages into what we call modern humans. But this is now us. And so exactly how this happened, when and where, is still a matter of question. And this is just one of many such uh, uh, diagrams you can find. This one, which I happen to favor, suggests that we originated in southern Africa, uh, in the area where the San Bushmen are now. But others claim East Africa. Regardless, we definitely originated in Africa. And at some point, maybe 50, 60, or perhaps even earlier, 70,000 years ago, spread into the Middle East and then went along the coastlines all the way to Australia, the first crossing of a major water barrier uh, <clears throat> by a hominid species. And then also spread across Europe and uh, Eurasia. And at the end of the last ice age, crossed over the land bridge. <clears throat> and within a thousand years, made it all the way down to the end of South America. So another way to track this is obviously with DNA uh, rather than fossils. And one way you can track it is with the female lineage. As you know, mitochondria pass from mother to child. And indeed, the, the earliest uh, mitochondrial DNA is found somewhere in Africa. And the spread pattern looks very similar to what I just showed. You can also track the migration of humans by following that single little piece of DNA that is responsible for more than 95% of all the physical violence and aggression on the planet, which is the Y chromosome. And you get the same pattern, much more complex. Uh, and again, you get uh, the similar lineages occurring. And in this case, the earliest Y chromosome has been found out in West Africa, the so-called uh, Y-DNA Adam. Very important to point out, this is not Adam and Eve in the sense of uh, the biblical uh, discussion, but rather that there was a single Y chromosome that all of us, all males now have, and single X, uh, X, uh, mitochondrial lineage that spread throughout. 
but the rest of the DNA came from others, and more likely there were five to 10,000 individuals that gave rise to all of us, but it's still a small group. So this brings up the question of genetic variation among living humans and the genetic non-reality of race as currently defined in US medicine. I did part of my training outside the US and it's very unusual that the way humans are classified in medicine here. Uh, if you take just a piece of uh, DNA and use it as Sarah Tishkoff has done here to look at all the humans on the planet, and this is a little bit old, but the pattern basically holds. The vast bulk of the diversity, this is these are lineages of this piece of DNA, are from Africa. And then you have these small branches going into uh, America, East Asia, Europe, India, Central Asia, very small branches. So as Swante Pabo put it, we humans expanded some 50 to 200,000 years ago, we don't know exactly, from a population of about 5 to 10,000 individuals, a rather small African population. Thus, from a genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. And think about that. That's, assume it's 50 to 100,000 years. It's only about two to 4,000 generations. Very limited time for evolutionary changes in terms of uh, uh, variation, although you do see some that we'll talk about. So all humans are very closely related to each other. But as you've heard in the news and Discovery Channel and everywhere, there clearly were other species around, Neanderthals, Denisovans, other Homo, other archaic African hominins, that we interbred with. And there's indeed, each of you has a little piece of, uh, depending on the part of the world you're from, you have pieces of these archaic uh, genomes in you. But the surprising thing, and this is just one of the many views of exactly what happened, it's still being worked out. The surprising thing, which I've written about, is why are there no persisting hybrids? Every other case on the planet where different species spread across and meet other species, you get hybrids and hybrid zones and different subspecies. There's something about us, I believe, uh, there's a question of argument among others that allowed us to take over and essentially almost replace everybody else with limited interbreeding. That is the situation today. How it happened is a different matter. Okay, so let's go back to this, this uh, picture of genetic origins and address the issue of African-Americans as defined in medicine. It turns out that the DNA from African-Americans matches to this little small subset of African DNA from West Africa, which makes sense given the history. But we tend to lump all people who have African background as African-Americans. And you can tell immediately there's a biological genetic issue there that does not make sense. But there are official U.S. federal government definitions of race and ethnicity, which we actually looked up to see if they were up to date. And here's what they say. An American Indian or Alaskan native is a person having origins in any of the original peoples of North and South America, including Central America, and who maintains tribal affiliation community attachment. Hispanic or Latino is a person of Cuban, Mexican, Puerto Rican, uh, South or Central American or other Spanish culture or origin. 
regardless of race. An Asian is a person having origins in any of the peoples of the Far East, including where I'm from, India, this big mixture of people, and they're all called Asians. Native Hawaiians or Pacific Islanders have origins in peoples of Hawaii, Guam, Samoa, or other Pacific Islands. A black or African American for, for this classification is called a person having origins in any of the black racial groups of Africa, not necessarily the original group. And a white is a person having origins in any of the original peoples of Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. So this is a classification that is used uh, in society, in media, in culture, in, and in medicine. But from the biological perspective, I, I think there's some serious issues that need to be addressed. Another way of looking at it is an American Indian or Alaskan native is anyone with any fraction of Native American ancestry who chooses to maintain a cultural identification. One percent is enough, but you can be 50 percent and not declare yourself. A Hispanic is anybody with predominantly Hispanic culture, regardless of biological ancestry, a big mixture of people from different parts of the world. Asian or Pacific Islanders, <clears throat> anybody from that part of the world, basically, highly mixed. In contrast, a black or African-American is anybody with any fraction of African ancestry, regardless of other admixture. And my definition of white is anybody with fair skin and non-slanted eyes who does not fit into the above categories and has a predominantly European cultural preference. Practically speaking, the African ancestry of self-identified African-Americans ranges from 20 to 100%. And European ancestry of self-identified whites or Caucasians varies with 30% having less than 10% European ancestry. So the bottom line is that this is genetically rather unscientific and geographic ancestry and genetics and genes and genomes are much better. We're not suggesting that disease differences don't exist in these so-called races because they could be due to ethnic, cultural or behavioral differences. So it's not an irrelevant matter. But I think the time is coming where uh, prominent articles are appearing about taking the race out of human genetics and I would recommend this article and also this uh, TED talk by Dorothy Roberts, a legal scholar who questioned uh, how she was being handled when she went to get medical care. So uh, there's a few quotes I'm going to put in the next two slides. I'm not going to read through them for lack of time. You can read them yourself. But this is from the older edition of Thompson's Genetics in Medicine. Uh, I like the phrases in the older edition. Labels defined by geographical origins were not as useful as genetic analysis in predicting the underlying differences in frequency of functional alleles in drug metabolizing genes. The goal of personalized medicine is to tailor therapy to the individual patient. And from another article in 2010, it is unclear whether there's any practical advantage in describing humans as if they're divided into biological races, although we know that they are not. And the burden of proof is now on those who claim that this is worthwhile. Of course, we're not saying that there aren't any practical consequences. But in, at the bottom line is the only safe way to know what is in a person's DNA is to study that person's DNA. And that is now feasible and cheap. And as you go into your uh, medical education, this is how things are going to change. Uh, we're going to look at each individual as an individual 
again getting information about geographic ancestry, ethnic background, cultural background is relevant to disease, but it is not the identifier of the person. If you are interested in my own personal take on this, you can look at a YouTube video that I put out after uh, the US, last US census where I was forced to classify myself. I had a very hard time doing that. Okay, so now let us switch over and go into the issues that have to do with evolution and disease. Why do diseases exist? Let us talk about some popular assumptions and fallacies about biological evolution and the value and risks of speculation in evolutionary thinking. A few quotes first. Dobzhansky, one of the famous geneticists, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. So corollary should be, nothing in the biological aspects of medicine makes sense except in the light of evolution. That should have been the title of the article that I wrote. However, as John Coffin put it, although no biological explanation makes sense except in the light of evolution, it does not follow that all evolutionary explanations make sense. So watch out for that. And the very same Dobzhansky said, Human evolution cannot be understood as a purely biological process, nor can it be adequately described as a history of culture. It is the interaction of biology and culture. There exists a feedback between biological and cultural processes. So uh, there's no time to talk about evolutionary biology in broad terms. I hope some of, some of you at least were educated about it during college periods, and, uh, and you can read more about it. But there are a lot of popular assumptions and fallacies about evolution that we need to set straight. So rather than give you a lecture about evolution, I'm going to talk about the fallacies, the popular assumptions and fallacies about biological evolution. Very common assumption. Natural selection means survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest was not coined by Charles Darwin. It was coined by an economist to explain why rich people are rich. The reality is selection works on reproductive success. Fitness is relative to the population under study and environment. If you don't reproduce, it doesn't matter how strong and fit you are. Selection shapes traits to benefit the species. The reality is there's no plan. Selection acts on individuals and genetic variants these carry. And in situations of evolutionary conflict, all parties involved can suffer. Natural selection usually leads to optimal design. Reality is populations evolve as individuals in them reproduce differentially. The changes are contingent on past events and current genetic variation. Natural selection cannot rescue lost variation. Think of a motor car doing, going down the freeway at full speed. Uh, if you have to drop something along the way, you can't turn around and say, oh, I'm going to stop and fix my engine or go back and pick up something. No, you've got to keep moving. Neutral evolution is also a very strong force, drift. Imperfections cannot be eliminated because natural selection is too weak. In fact, there are evolutionary trade-offs that contribute to imperfections and recessive alleles can be hidden from selection. Very common misconception is pathogens are evolving just to live with their hosts. Reality is pathogens evolve to maximize their own replication. Natural selection shapes health and longevity. Reality is that natural selection maximizes reproductive success, and health and longevity are only relevant if they affect reproductive success. 
disease results from mutations and natural selection cannot eliminate. In fact, most of the time, most common diseases, as we'll talk about, result from multiple existing genes interacting with novel environments. Aging results only because body parts wear out. In fact, this is a contributing factor, but selection operates on reproductive success. There's no selection against aging. And the deleterious effects of genes expressed uh, in early life that are beneficial could turn out to be bad in the future in, as you get older. But humans, it turns out, we won't have time to talk about this, are a rare example of a species of post prolonged post-reductive reproductive lifespan during which selection may still operate via grandmothers. So uh, regardless, if you've gone through you know, billions of years of evolution, why do diseases exist? Randy Nessie and George Williams point out that, again, to repeat, mismatch. Bodies are a novel environment, different from the one that was selected for. We are slowly replicating organisms. We are always behind in competing with faster evolving pathogens, the so-called red queen. Those of you who have read through the looking glass, Alice meets the red queen and he says, run. And they run in the run, they're still under the same tree. So Alice says, why are we running? Red queen says, I don't know where you're from, but around here, if you want to stay in the same place, you better keep running. And so that's about a lot of evolutionary processes, especially involving pathogens involved. Selection is constrained. Every trait is a trade-off. None can be perfect. And of course, as we said before, natural selection must work with existing situations and possibilities and cannot recover something that has been lost. We misunderstand. Again, repeating myself, the organism is selected for reproductive success, not for strength and health after a peak reproductive period. Important point that Randy makes, I think, is, is that defenses such as pain, fever, nausea, and diarrhea can cause suffering, and we doctors are told to treat them. But they also may represent beneficial responses to early warning signs of pathology. You know, you don't want your smoke detector to go off after there's a raging fire, right? You want it to go off early enough. And so sometimes we may be over-treating these symptoms. And in fact, for example, fever, a moderate fever can help to control an infection. Okay, now let me consider the value and risks of speculation. Evolutionary biology is full of speculation because there's a lot that we still need to learn. So you take prior dogma, anecdotal information, available data, come up with a theory, collect more information, speculate further, testable predictions, and if you get some either experimental verification, if you're lucky, or at least a strong evolutionary theory, you're back around again. The problem arises when you get more and more speculation from more and more anecdotal information, and you end up with what are called just-so stories. And some of them sound really good, but they're wrong. So uh, I would say that uh, you need to take an um, open view about all of this. And uh, as you go along, we're going to be learning more and more about evolution and its impact on medicine. And it's, it's something that has not been paid enough attention to and is now increasing in its importance. Okay, now let's uh, come to more recent times and look at genetic variation in modern humans, that is us. In order to understand that, you have to look at the end of the last ice age in what is called the current Holocene epoch. We live in a very unusually stable warm period. This is the last uh, 56,000 years, 
and different large mammals. That's a whole other story that's in this article. But this line is temperature. And we are very lucky. We're living in one of the most stable periods of the last half million years. And it's called the Holocene Epoch. And we're busy messing it up. But that's a different story uh, as humans. But from the biomedical point of view, what is important is that this is a very short time in terms of evolutionary biology. And that prior to this 10,000 years, give or take, depending on the society in question, there's no evidence for agriculture or major civilizations. And most humans very likely lived in small scattered groups or tribes of hunter-gatherers. So some people call this the Pleistocene environment of evolutionary adaptation. But there's a fallacy that's often perpetuated that there's a single climate or condition of evolutionary adaptation. Just look at the temperature variation here. Think of where people were at different times and different places. There was all kinds of environments of evolutionary adaptation. So there, there is no single EEA as suggested by some. So now let's look at modern humans. There is genetic variation, not to suggest that evolution has stopped. Evolution is ongoing. We're in the middle of evolution, right? It's not a process that's over. Perhaps the most dramatic one is skin color, which is an obvious difference that because we're such a visually uh, focused species, we can see there's a strong relationship to latitude. Genes involved have been studied, multiple genes affecting skin melanocytes, basically an organization of melanin under your skin, multiple independent events. In fact, there's some evidence that the earliest humans may have been somewhat light-skinned and became darker later. And why is this? Well, one clear thing is that sunlight generates vitamin D and likely destroys folate. So too much sunlight uh, without adequate protection from UV radiation give you trouble. There may have been sexual selection by mate choice. Humans are very visual species, and mate choice is often a visual choice. This picture from uh, uh, a science article will give you more information and suggestions about how these things may have happened over time. We don't know for sure, but clearly skin color has been changing in different latitudes and different locations for different reasons. Another one is lactase persistence. You've all heard of lactose intolerance. Actually, what happened is in the centers of cattle domestication and milk drinking, the genes, gene involved was, was uh, the lactase gene. Multiple independent, evidence, independent events occurred that causes lactase persistence, survival advantage to adult milk drinkers. Think of it this way. Um, no other mammal steals the mammary secretions of another mammal, right? So we started doing that. And, but after the age of two or three, we can't digest lactose. That's the original condition. So lactose intolerance is actually the hu normal human conditions. Lactase persistence and milk tolerance is, if you like, the disease. On the other hand, that allowed us to form societies and uh, those who could drink milk and survive did better. So in fact, it turns out the remarkable evidence of rapid evolution in recent time, there are two and probably three lactase hotspots in which people have persistent lactase production. So you can see that why people in 
you know, in the Far East, never use milk in their cooking. Whereas in some parts of the world, milk is the key to many cuisines even. And there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff about the diary diaspora and where it came from in the Middle East, properly into Europe, and other, other events that may have occurred in other parts of the world. But it's a fascinating example of recent evolution. There are more examples. I'll give you one more. Uh, alcohol intolerance. Some of you are aware that people from the Far East have difficulty drinking too much alcohol. They tend to flush up. And that's because an alcohol dehydrogenase mutation was selected for that causes overproduction of acetaldehyde, causes the flushing and unpleasant status. And it happened multiple times. So why was this? It's very strange. Uh, you know, the standard joke is that there may have been a period of time where humans had figured out how to make alcohol, and people were so drunk that the only ones who could reproduce were the ones who were not drunk. <laughs> a more likely explanation is that it had to do with the fact that liver parasites are very common in that part of the world. Actually, we don't know. So I made a joke out of it, but you know, the way evolution works, the joke may be the right answer. We don't know. Be that as it may, alcohol intolerance is very common in the Far East. It's an example. So there are many other examples of phylogenetic adaptive alleles. Most of them have to do with disease resistance, as you can imagine, because of the Red Queen effect. And I won't go into this. There are other pictures like this you can find in the literature. Okay, so now let's move on to the examples of genetic variation in modern humans, the ice, last ice age, changes in modern lifestyle and biology that are related to disease, the microbiome, the hygiene hypothesis, diet, and thrifty genes. So we've mentioned milk drinking after infancy. It clearly uh, has changed and increased the source of many nutrients and calcium, but it's also a rich source of saturated fat and other potential problems as you get uh, into, a, into a more affluent society. Mother-infant co-sleeping. In most uh, hunter-gatherer societies, a mother and infant co-sleep for several years. And this has markedly decreased. Um, perhaps uh, it makes the father do more work, but uh, the bottom line is it's been associated with the increase in sudden infant death syndrome, where babies are left alone in cribs. Dietary soluble fiber has been reduced. Chewing is easier, food is tastier, but this may be related to irritable bowel and colon cancer. Toughness of food is released, uh, reduced. Chewing is easier, less gingivitis, but we get dental crowding. We get impacted wisdom teeth. Our jaws are much smaller than those of hunter-gatherers. Consumption of red meat, which although it began two million years ago, there's been a marked increase. Nutritious, satisfying, but associated with carcinomas and atherosclerosis. Excessive focus on near objects, which probably began with writing and reading, and now is accelerated with the computers. Market increase. Cognitive benefits, but an epidemic of myopia, uh, in, especially in societies where uh, much of this going on. Gut bacteria and worms have markedly reduced as we sanitize the environment and escaped a lot of terrible diseases. We also have a lower parasite burden, but this may be associated with Crohn's disease. Hygiene has greatly improved. And this protects us from infection, but may be associated with an increase in allergies. 
So I want to focus a little more on this last part because it's become a very important topic now. Uh, Rob Knight, who just recently came to UCSD, gave me the slide, and some of you have been hearing about this, that while our body may contain 30 trillion human cells, we contain about the same number or more of microbial cells. So in some ways, we're just carriers for microbes from generation to generation, right? But if you look at the level of DNA, we have about 20,000 genes. There's about 2 to 20 million microbial genes in us. So this has a massive effect on human biology, which has been largely ignored and not paid much attention to. And now is starting to get attention in the form of the Human Microbiome Project, which is, uh, involves people at UCSD and elsewhere. So this brings up the hygiene hypothesis that some of you have probably heard of. Frequent exposure to viral, bacterial, and parasitic pathogens prior to modern medicine and sanitation. This cleanliness resulted in market reductions in various infectious diseases, but the immune system has been selected to battle pathogens while minimizing collateral damage. And the human body has been selected to constantly interact with pathogens. So the frequency of severity of allergic diseases such as asthma has markedly increased. Highest incidence is in the developed societies with the highest levels of hygiene. And it turns out that childhood exposure to farm environments or chronic infection with parasitic worms decreases allergies. In fact, the failure of drugs for allergic diseases led to consideration, serious consideration, of deliberate worm infections as an alternate therapy. And also, everybody wants to replenish their normal commensals, but be aware that many of the common probiotics that are sold are not based on very good science. But someday we should have the right things to give. Important relationship to antibiotics. The more we give antibiotics, the more we kill our normal microbiomes. As Blazer puts it, stop killing the beneficial bacteria. Here's an example of a troubling correlation. The number of courses of antibiotics given to children is associated with increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease later in life. Diet. Diet has undergone dramatic changes, starting with our starting to eat meat and then cooking and so on. And there's a whole other story which we can't go into here, eventually resulting in our current situation, which has undergone very dramatic changes over the last 10 to 20,000 years, which may explain the severity and frequency of some modern human diseases. Frugivory, fruit eating in primates. This is the slide I showed you before, except now I'm showing you the, the uh, what, what those colors mean. Percent of fruit in diet. You can see that except for humans, most primates with tricolor stereoscopic vision detect and eat a lot of fruit. And so with the exception perhaps of uh, mountain gorillas, uh, we humans are the ones that have very low fruit in the diet. So a hunter-gatherer was eating a lot, is still, those that are still around are eating lots of fruits and nuts, some tubers, lean red meat, soluble fiber, lots of physical activity. The agrarian revolution has changed all of this, and the Western lifestyle is much lower levels of these. Large amounts of starchy tubers, corn, the introduction of rice and wheat, and especially processed, very fatty red meat, and huge amounts of milk products, low soluble fiber, low physical activity. Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, very common. Hmm, I wonder what's going on. The shape of things to come, actually, they've already come. 
So, but this is not the whole explanation uh, because the obesity epidemic is not uniform across the world and it's not di directly related purely to diet and exercise. There's another hypothesis which has never been proven in terms of specific genes, but is worth mentioning called the thrifty gene hypothesis. And it kind of holds up even though there's no specific genes really. It goes like this. Prior to modern civilization, uh, it was helpful to crave nutrients, salt, sugar, saturated fat. And even after the advent of agriculture, before irrigation and other ways of dealing with famine and, I mean, so on, you went from boom to bust, feast and famine, feast and famine, feast and famine. So salt, sugar, saturated fat, etc., limiting for growth and physiology of reproduction, which is important for evolution and, and propagation of the species. So the theory is, and we have no definitive proof for this, is that alleles that encourage craving and eating them may have been adaptive. And we still crave all these things. But now we have a smorgasbord of food around us and huge selection of all possibilities and a super abundant environment. Basically, the bottom line, regardless of details, is that our genetic makeup is tuned to a different environment. And the results are insulin resistance, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and combined with the big changes in the decrease in physical activity and the increase in uh, availability of processed foods and large quantities of food. So finally, let's talk about human longevity and point out that it's not a recent novelty. It has implications for the future of medical practice. This is the number of uh, people over the age of 100 or 105 in Sweden and Japan over the last century. You can see this is market, market increase occurring in the, in the existence of centenarians. And in fact, if you look at this uh, age pyramid, this is 2010 worldwide for males and females. You can, prediction is by 2050, a substantial number of people will be above 65. And this is resulting in also in what is called a growing sickness. As people live longer, they're living more, getting more chronic conditions, and you can go through the slide more carefully later if you like, but the, basically this has implications for aging societies. Perhaps the biggest problem you're going to be facing is Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease already had a substantial rate even at, in, at earlier times, but the rate is pr projected to increase. Uh, uh, and it's going to go much higher and to the point where by the time you guys are well practiced in medicine, there's going to be a maybe, you know, 10% of people living with Alzheimer's disease, which is a huge burden on society and there's a huge problem and this is a huge uh, research medical challenge and something that uh, we all have to figure out how to deal with. So are we just living longer because of hygiene and antibiotics and vaccines and so on? It turns out, although you hear this common story that hunter-gatherers mostly died at 40 to 45, which is really true, if you look in the hunter-gatherer tribes, there's always a few extremely old people. So actually, the ability to live long has been around for a long time. Surprisingly, you compare that to chimpanzees. No matter what you do for them in terms of medical care and captivity, they all die by 50 to 55. And this post-reproductive period in humans, and I don't have time to go into it, is suggested to be very important in humans in terms of the grandmother hypothesis, which uh, relates to the fact that a non-fertile elderly female can take care of the helpless young that the mother cannot take care of. And uh, of course, along the way, you get a few wise old men. That's not necessarily a bad thing either. 
So, um, I'll conclude by pointing out that there are many, many useful books on evolution and medicine. Uh, I talked to some of the experts in the area and picked out what I think are the best books if you want to read more. There's some, there's some useful websites, <clears throat> but keep be careful. There's many, many more bogus websites about evolution, disease, medicine, etc., that sell you all kinds of stuff. So, uh, I need to credit uh, Jesse Roby, the program rep in Carter, who helped me put these latest versions of slides together. Pascal Gagneau, the associate director who critiqued all of this. Dr. Connie Holm and, and the dean, Jess Mandel, who agreed that human evolution should be up front and center in medical education. The Health Sciences Audiovisual Crew. The Mathers Foundation in New York that supports Carter. And many CARTA members who over the years have taught me and others a lot about human evolution, which I've applied to my knowledge of disease. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.